appreciate that. Trent, if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to join me in the book of Philippians chapter 3. I think sometimes we lose the reality of Scripture when we throw a name like Philippians out there. Understand the Apostle Paul had a burden for world missions. He desired to get the gospel message all around the world. And at a point in his ministry, he wanted to go to Asia and the Holy Spirit closed that door. He has a vision, that's how the Lord spoke to the Apostle Paul, and he is called to go to Macedonia, and his ministry at Philippi is birthed. And here we have before us the inspired writing of the Apostle Paul. This is his personal letter back to the first church ever established in Europe, located in Philippi. Now, when you think of the Apostle Paul's dynamic ministry, and you know that there's a book, we probably imagine that there was some dynamic start to the church at Philippi, but that was certainly not the case. In fact, this church begins with a couple of converts who are two women, one, a merchant woman who was a seller of purple, and the other, a little slave girl. The third convert will come in a strange way. They don't really receive Paul and Silas warmly at Philippi, and in fact, Paul and Silas are beaten with rods, they are beaten bloody, their feet are put in stocks, which was a Roman torture device, and they are placed in prison. And the Apostle Paul, in this moment in prison, is about to demonstrate what he will write 10 years later because he and Silas are going to be singing praises at midnight in the jail cell. That is certainly counterintuitive. That's a strange response to that kind of torture. But 10 years later, the Apostle Paul will write in Philippians 4.4, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again, I say rejoice. He's living out what he is writing to them later. Now in the night after the gospel has been shared and Jesus has been discussed and songs of praise have been offered up, there's an earthquake that shakes the prison. All the prisoners' chains fall off and the doors of their prison cells swing open and the jailer, whose life literally depended on keeping those prisoners in prison, is about to kill himself, assuming that all the prisoners have escaped from within the prison cell. The apostle Paul calls out and he stops him. And he assures him that none of the prisoners have escaped, that they are all still there. Undoubtedly, that blows the mind of the jailer. Moved already, I believe, by gospel conversation that he had heard going on and perhaps a song or two sung before he drifted off to sleep. He rolls into the prison and in Acts chapter 16, we hear this encounter between he and Paul, verse 30, and he brought them out and said to Paul and Silas, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. This is how the church at Philippi begins. We have a couple of converts, one down by the riverside, Lydia, the seller of purple. In the city, we have a slave girl who is freed from a demon, and then they are beaten, imprisoned, and the jailer is reached. This is an inauspicious start, to say the very least. 
Paul and Silas are kind of moved on out of Philippi. The magistrates of the city get them to leave, but not before Paul confronts them with the fact that he is, in fact, a Roman citizen and they should not have, without trial, beat and imprisoned him. Nervously, they want him to go and protectively Paul leaves. It's a pretty small start for a church to receive a letter such as this one. But no doubt it grew, and it grew in the midst of persecution. And by the time we arrive here in Philippians chapter 3, we read something that Paul writes that is quite paradoxical. Here's what he says in verse 7 of chapter 3. But what things were gain to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, And I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. Paul just stated, I chose to lose in order to win. In there is the paradoxical statement. The language that Paul uses is one of decision. I made a business decision. I reckoned. I willfully and intentionally chose to lose in order to win Jesus Christ. If we're fully going to understand that paradox, there are a few things we have to establish first. I want you to note back in verse 1 of chapter 3 that the Apostle Paul communicates to us how we can make a safe choice. Note in chapter 3 and verse 1, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Now, I am aware every time you preach from Philippians chapter 3, you're supposed to pause and you're supposed to say, insert pastor joke here because he says the word finally and he's only halfway through the chapter, halfway through the book. Meaning anytime a pastor says, and finally, let me say one more thing, you know he's lying. Right? Finally, that's what he says. Finally, however, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. The word finally there does not mean this is the last thing that I'm going to say. It in fact means furthermore or now then, before I move on, before I deliver this intensely paradoxical statement, there is a critical issue that I must revisit That I must say to you yet again, because you need to hear it again, because for you it is a safeguard. And he says, rejoice in the Lord. Now remember, he was imprisoned in Philippi, and he was singing songs of praise. He lives out what he now tells them to do. He's already told them this in the letter. Back in chapter 2 and verse 17, he says, Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. In chapter 4, a chapter beyond where we are, he'll say in verse 4, Again, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Again I say rejoice. That's what he is driving toward. He's telling them in chapter 3, I have to tell you yet again to rejoice in the Lord. And in chapter 4, he says, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. A church 
with believers going through persecution needed to be reminded to rejoice in the Lord. And really, this is a command. It's a mandate. Rejoice in the Lord. This is as much a mandate from Scripture as is do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Here on the positive side, do rejoice in the Lord. You could write in the margin of your Bible, just do it, exclamation point. Do it, exclamation point. Decisively, intentionally, willfully rejoice in the Lord. You say, man, you do realize that tomorrow is Monday morning, right? Oh, yeah. You do realize that Sunday is kind of my Monday morning. I'm kind of working today. I'm going to kick it off before you even get started. You say, you mean on Monday morning, rejoice in the Lord? Yep. All the time. You mean about halfway through this message when my belly rumbles and I'm ready for you to be done, rejoice in the Lord? Yep. Rejoice in the Lord. Willfully, intentionally, just do it. One wrote this. Expressing joy then is not the result of emotion. Because you can't command someone to feel a certain way. You cannot command emotion. Joy then isn't a temperamental characteristic because you can't rewire somebody just by commanding it. Joy then isn't related to circumstances or health or bank accounts because you can't control circumstances or health or bank accounts. To rejoice in the Lord means to look to Him alone as your depository of joy. To rejoice in the Lord means that you find in the Lord your source of joy. He is the highest object of your joy. He is the treasure and fellowship of joy. He'll go on to write in effect, to write these things is not a trouble to me, Paul says, but rather it's a safeguard to you. This is safe for you to rejoice in the Lord. It's the ultimate safe space to rejoice in the Lord. It's the ultimate escape from anxiety and trouble. Rejoice in the Lord. One commentator said this, A joyful Christian actually has a defense system built around his mind and his heart. Do you comprehend that? You have an internal defense system against temptation and the doldrums. It is to intentionally and willfully rejoice in the Lord and find in Him your everything. Another commented that the believer simply can't be complaining and at the same time rejoicing in the Lord. It's simply impossible to do both at the same time. Now, I know what you're thinking, Pastor. You complain a lot. Does that mean you aren't always rejoicing in the Lord? Absolutely. In fact, I wrote in my sermon notes, I need this, exclamation point. You can't be complaining and rejoicing in the Lord at the same time, which means there will come a moment where willfully and intentionally we will have to mute our complaining mouth and spirit and choose to rejoice in the Lord and find our all in His sovereign plan. You can't do otherwise. It's a safe thing for you to do. It's the right thing for you to do. Matthew Henry, Puritan expositor, way back in the 1600s. So we know it has to be good, right? Came from the 1600s. Stuff was great back then. Or so I hear. He wrote this. 
The joy of the Lord is a divine armor against the assaults of our spiritual enemies and puts our mouths out of taste for those pleasures with which the tempter baits his hooks. The taste of joy in our mouths makes the tempter's offerings seem bland by comparison. In fact, the word safe that he uses here comes from a word that communicates it will keep you from tripping, it will keep you from stumbling, it will keep you from falling off into sin if you choose to find joy in the Lord. Life will not offer you this. Circumstances can assure you that you will have anything but joy. This is not a temperamental thing. This is not an emotional thing. This is not a circumstantial thing. This is a spiritual thing. It's a choice that you make, and it's the safe choice. Nehemiah told us, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And before he ever delivers a paradoxical statement, the Apostle Paul says, let me tell you one more time to rejoice In the Lord. Do it. Now, there were false teachers that were assaulting the believers at Philippi. Paul had reached this small, meager group, and they had reached more lost, and they're assembling together, and they're growing, and they're learning, and false teachers creep in, as they always do. And the false teachers that were creeping into the church at Philippi were legalists. They were literally coming in and telling these believers, grace is not enough. You need to add to grace works. You need to do more in order to actually be one of God's. The Apostle Paul very strongly calls them dogs. He calls them mutilators. They're not there to do anything but to mutilate the flesh when they impose upon you the right of circumcision. When you don't need that, it's about the circumcision of the heart. And Paul's going to round a corner and he's going to have a contest of sorts with these false teachers. He's going to one-up these false teachers who have crept in. And the Apostle Paul is going to communicate his spiritual resume. He's going to talk about his spiritual accomplishments in the flesh. He's going to talk down about the false teachers who have invaded the church by, in a way, talking himself up. That's what he's doing in verse 4. Listen in. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. He's saying here, I have a superior confidence. Verse 5, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, an Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Now those verses might have some strange clauses within them, but everyone that was reading it immediately grasped what the Apostle Paul was doing, and every false teacher that was a part of that reading heard it and knew they did not measure up. Paul was a spectacular specimen as far as Phariseeism was concerned. I read a very descriptive biography of the Apostle Paul. It was intriguing to me. Paul's parents were Pharisees. In fact, in his home, friendships with Gentile children would have been discouraged. 
From infancy, he would have been taught to speak Greek. He had a working knowledge of the Latin language. In his home, they would have spoke Aramaic. As a student, he would have learned Hebrew. To say he was multilingual is kind of light. By his 13th birthday, he would have mastered all of Jewish history. Memorizing vast portions of the Torah. He would have grasped the Psalms. He would have understood all the books of prophecy. Thus, he's ready for higher education. So his family sends him from Tarshish down to Jerusalem where he will learn at the feet of Gamaliel, the son of Hillel. He's a high-level teacher. He's teaching him rabbinical studies. The apostle Paul would have learned to debate, to expound He actually would have been part lawyer because he would have had to head into the hall of polished stones and stand before the Sanhedrin and as he brought Christians in to be punished or executed, he would have argued from the law against them. Paul was a bright star. The fact is he outstripped his contemporaries. He undoubtedly had a powerful mind. I believe he was headed for a seat on the Sanhedrin to make him one of the rulers of the Jews. He's doing this. He's communicating this. He's articulating this. If anyone could ever have a superior confidence in what they have done in their flesh, it's the Apostle Paul. Then he enters into some of these clauses which stand out as strange. He says, I was circumcised the eighth day. What he's telling us in that moment is this. I was born into a home that honored Old Testament Scripture. According to Leviticus 12, that was to be a ceremonial rite, and Paul did it. He said, I was of the stock of Israel. Effectively, and this mattered culturally in his time, he's saying, I am a racially pure-blood Israelite. He says, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin, the only son born in the promised land. The tribe of Benjamin, the only one to remain faithful to Judah and the house of David after the death of Solomon. Judah, I'm sorry, Benjamin, the tribe that returned from exile to resettle in Jerusalem. King Saul, which by the way is Paul's birth name, is the first king of the nation of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin. What he is saying is if ever there was an insider to the nation, it's me. And we know from the book of Ephesians that without Christ, we're described as outsiders, as foreigners, as aliens. And Paul is saying, if anyone was an insider, it's me. If anyone was adhering to the law from infancy, it's me. If anyone is a racially pure blood, it's me. He said, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Now, he was born outside of the Holy Land in Tarshish, but his parents were both pure-blood Hebrews, thus a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He's also communicating, and I still know the language. Because at this point in time, millions of Jewish children had moved away and were speaking Greek, and Paul is saying, I've not moved on beyond that. I still speak in the Hebrew and can study the Scriptures in their original languages. As a Pharisee, he said, I was blameless. One said this, the Pharisees were the Olympic athletes of Jewish culture and holy living. How many of you would like to be considered an Olympic athlete of holy living? The Pharisees sound like a miserable bunch to be around, don't they? Hey, I'm kind of an athlete, are you? Yeah, superior athlete in holiness. Oh, please never invite us to dinner. 
were anything but athletic in holiness. I mean, after all, the Pharisees were so concerned with how they looked, they wore the longest robes they possibly could and their phylacteries, for whatever that word is. When they were fasting, they'd go down to the marketplace and they would put ash on their face so that they looked pale and they looked sickly so that people would say, oh my, are you fasting? To which they would say, yes, how could you tell? They would pray in public places. They were fastidious about the law. They were exact about all the rules or so they'd have you to think. And I believe that the Apostle Paul, get this, was one of the good ones. I know we give Pharisees a really bad name within Scripture, but a lot of these were sincere individuals who were trying to make God happy. They were trying to please God by living in this way. The Apostle Paul says, when it comes to the law, I never took a day off. I chased down conscientiously every ceremony and every rule down to the slightest inclination. I pursued it. He is literally saying, I out-Phariseed all the other Pharisees. If this was an athletic contest in holy living, he was a superstar. Then he says, as a persecutor, I was zealous. Paul hated Christians. He would travel hundreds of miles in order to find them and bring them in chains back to Jerusalem. He would openly confess this as shameful later on in his life. In fact, he writes to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, I am the least of the apostles. That I'm not me to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. He'll tell the believers in Galatia, in Galatians 1, 13 and 14, For ye have heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it, and profited in the Jews' religion, above many my equals in mine own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. He was sold out to the traditions. He meant it. It was his Everything from his infancy, his nose was in the books. He was put in the special schools. It was every fiber of his being to chase down the law and to go after Christians who rejected it. The Apostle Paul was a specimen of spirituality. You could not possibly question his fleshly pedigree. Spurgeon said this, If anybody might, Paul might. If birth, education, external religion could have saved anybody in the world, it would have saved Saul of Tarshish. If anybody that was ever born, and there's never been anybody born, who could by adherence to the law have attained salvation, the Apostle Paul is saying, that would have been me. You can't work any harder for it. You couldn't be any more separated. You couldn't pursue it with any more exactness than I did. That's what the Apostle Paul is telling us. And then he delivers the paradoxical statement. It begins with the word but in verse 7. If anybody could have made it, it would have been me. But, verse 7, what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things 
but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. If anyone could have had a superior confidence in themselves, it was me. But I chose to count those things but lost for the supreme knowledge of Jesus Christ. Paul was intelligent. Paul was educated. We've established that. Here his language is exact and it's vivid. The entire chapter has been decisive. It's been intentional. It's been willful. Rejoice in the Lord. Just do it. And now the apostle actually switches into accounting language. It's vivid and it's intentional and it depicts decision making. He uses words like loss and gain and count. All of those are business terms. One said this, in this intensely autobiographical section, Paul examines his own life. He becomes an auditor who opens the books to see what wealth he has and he discovers that he is bankrupt. Another said, becoming his own auditor, he could only certify the whole as dead loss and himself as a miserable and hopeless bankrupt. The term gain is something that you would put in the profit column. Thusly, the term loss would be something that would go in the loss column. The Apostle Paul is being very clear. Everything that I have ever done in my flesh, everything that the world would look at and consider gain, I have audited my own life and I recognize all of that which I have told you of is actually in the lost column. And the only thing in the profit column is Jesus. That's my only credit. My only credit then is Jesus. Paul goes further and he even uses crass language when he says, I count it but dung so that I may win Christ. Dung is a crass word. He's literally saying all of that other stuff belongs in the sewer. What the Apostle Paul is saying very vividly and very plainly is this. If anybody could have ever pleased God and what they were doing in the flesh, it would have been me. That's not arrogance, man. That's fact. This was not hyperbolic speech. This is inspired scripture. Paul was everything a Pharisee should be. He was educated to the nth degree. And at the end of it all, he says, the only thing that matters is Jesus. Only thing in the prophet column for me, Saul of Tarshish, now Paul the apostle, is Jesus. Can I tell you in a setting such as this one where we have people who are educated people? People who have reached some social standing. People who have survived some winter and some summer seasons in life. People who have attained some material possessions and some pedigree and done some things in their life. Let me tell you this. If you don't have Jesus, you have nothing. 
Let me say to you, if you are trusting in anything that you've done, in the person you are, in the home that you've come from, in the religion in which you were raised, if you're taking a look at anything that you've given away or something that you've amassed to try to square up with a holy God when it's all said and done, you are doomed and damned for an eternity in hell. For without Jesus, you have nothing. If at the end of your days on this planet earth, if you spent all of your days pursuing excellence and chasing down and doing things for yourself, if you get to the end of it all and there's everything you have amassed, all of it shifts to the lost column and only what you've done for Jesus matters. This is reorientating scripture. When he says, I count all things, he means all things. He means all financial gain, I wipe it out, only Jesus matters. All material gain, I wipe it out, only Jesus matters. All physical gain doesn't matter, only Jesus matters. All intellectual gain, all moral gain, all religious gain, all of these things are no gain at all. It's only Jesus. He's the one that will write, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. He's drawing a distinction in my flesh. When I say in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. He's also saying, but I am indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And if there's anything good in me, Paul would say, it's Jesus and only Jesus. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter where you're from, doesn't matter what you've amassed, doesn't matter what you're doing. If Jesus isn't the center of it, it's pointless and profitless. Jesus said the same in Matthew 5 as he's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said in verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Again, that's really straightforward teaching by Jesus. What Jesus is saying in that verse as he uses the word poor is not even the word that depicts a beggar. It's a word so vivid it it depicts someone who without outside intervention that person cannot survive. That is us coming to God with our pockets turned inside out and our palms turned up. Nothing in our palms, nothing in our hands. We stand before him and say, there's nothing in me that I can offer for salvation. It's Jesus and only Jesus. But far too few of us actually live that out. As a result, we know only the spiritually bankrupt are the ones that make it to the kingdom of heaven, that trust Jesus for their eternal future. Thomas Watson, this is the second Puritan writer that I've referenced in this message. You say, do you read boring stuff sometimes? Listen, you know that it turns into boring sermons. Come on, be honest. Thomas Watson said this on this text. This signifies those who are brought to the sense of their sins. And seeing no goodness in themselves, despair in themselves, and appeal wholly to the mercy of God in Christ. Until we are poor in spirit, we cannot receive grace, for we are swollen with self-excellency and self-sufficiency. If the hand be full of pebbles, it cannot receive gold. Until we are poor in spirit, Christ is never precious. We only see our wants and never see Christ's worth. If our hand is full of pebbles, we cannot receive gold. 
If we are not poor in spirit, we will never see Christ as precious. Listen, I believe this, and it is a sad reality. There are going to be some who trust in the religion they were raised in in order to square up with God for eternity, and it's not going to cut it. There are going to be some that trust in a baptism at some point in life back in their distant past, and that's what they're going to try to exchange for their sins. There are going to be others who attend churches like this long and hard, who carry a Bible under their arm, and whether they realize it or not, they've placed all of their trust in their sufficiency to stay separated and to stand and to look right and to sing right and to sound right, and they are ultimately going to stand before God and find out that God never knew them. Because the only thing that matters is that Jesus has paid for your sins. And as you live out your years on this life, if you are so full of yourself, Christ will never be precious to you. If your career and your financial situation and your energy and your ambition and your emotions and your will are always what you're invested in and not Jesus, if you're always sufficient in yourself, Christ will never be precious. And Paul says, I took everything and shifted it to the lost column for the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Is that your testimony? That nothing matters more than Jesus? That you're trusting nothing and only Jesus for salvation? I don't mean to be ugly, and in fact, I recognize that this kind of preaching comes across caustic. It comes across corrective in nature, and I think that's because we have normalized carnality. And we have diminished holiness to such a degree that we feel like this smacks of a corrective nature when all we're doing is saying, no, this has been in the Bible since the Bible was inspired. All things lost. Only Jesus. The fact is when the Apostle Paul says, I counted all things lost in verse 7, it's past tense. It means at salvation, I emptied myself of all of my accomplishments and trusted only Jesus for salvation. And then in verse 8, when he says, and do count them lost, he is saying now in a different tense, every day, even now in this present moment, I continue to count all of these attainments and all of these achievements as lost if any one of them impedes my growth in Jesus Christ. He's not saying stop living life. He's not saying wealth is bad. He's not saying material things and education is bad. That is not what he is saying. But he is saying it crosses over into the bad sector when it gets in front or it gets between us and the preciousness of Jesus Christ. He's not saying go live like a monk and sit on a stump out in the woods somewhere. We are in this world. He prayed for us in John 17. Not that he'd take us out of this world, but he'd Keep the evil from us. We're here. It's okay to succeed. God's not against wealth or possessions or education. He's not against excellence. What God wants is for us to be certain that we keep our ledger straight. And every day we pursue the preciousness of Christ and we want more knowledge of him. As Matthew Henry wrote, wherever there is true grace, there is a desire for more grace. The only thing worth mentioning about us is Jesus. Jesus saved me. I'm doing the work of the Lord Jesus. Lose the ambition. Lose the hurt. Lose the selfishness. Lose the vengeance, the effort, the works. Lose the men-pleasing way of life and win Christ. Only Jesus matters. 
Only Jesus is worth it. As one wrote, develop a holy dissatisfaction with your spiritual attainments. Put out of your mind anything in the past which hinders your pursuit of God. Strain forward like an athlete for more knowledge of Christ. If you want to succeed in anything, succeed in knowledge of Jesus Christ. And he says to us, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. God blesses in a myriad of ways. The question is not what do you have. The question is where is it in your ledger? Would you please pray with me now? Bow heads. Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.